Hello, and welcome to Outer Spaces, a podcast dedicated to empowering designers and contractors in the outdoor living space. Through this show, we hope to create a powerful resource for you, someone who is trying to grow their company, but might not have all the tools and processes to do so. On Outer Spaces, we are passionate about breaking the chains of small mindsets and helping contractors just like you take control of their businesses and their lives. My name is Joshua Gillow. And I'm Dwayne Drawn. Through our 40 years of combined dirt under the nails experience, we look forward to sharing tips, strategies, and other contractor success stories here on the Outer Spaces podcast. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Outer Spaces podcast. This is your host, Joshua Gillow, alongside my trusty sidekick, Dwayne Drum. What's going on, Dwayne? What's going on, my man? Chilling like a villain. Um, it's cold as all get up up here. So if you got some heat over there, Greg, if you got some heat where you're at, just throw some up this way. It is freezing up here. Hey, it's going to be <laughs> 70 degrees in Alabama on Christmas Day. So we loving it. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> I don't want to hear that stuff. It's cold as hell in Pennsylvania, too, for sure. Well, today, guys, we have a special guest back on the show. He was uh, recently on the show and he uh, really opened up a lot of the cool doors to, you know, numbers and and how they impact your business in a, in a way of, you know, so often we get into business because we're passionate about a certain thing. Like we love to build cool shit or, or we just get sick and tired of working for somebody else. And we want to kind of direct the ship and head our direction, but uh, we become great, you know, installers or great designers. But when it comes to the actual numbers, a lot of us want to hide from them, right? We want to stay away from them. We don't understand them. We don't understand how they communicate to each other and what one means when you start seeing certain percentages change, all that good stuff. So I found these guys here after reading the book, uh, Simple Numbers and Simple Numbers 2.0, uh, Greg's books, and uh, wanted to you know share this knowledge with you guys because it's transformed my business, my, my uh, design build um, practice. And I wanted you guys to be able to be introduced to this idea as well. So we've had that conversation already with Greg. If you haven't heard it, go back in our podcast and you'll see where he was on before but we also after we shut off the mic we uh, started having a conversation and he brought up this concept that i really wanted to share with our listeners um this whole concept of the black hole of business and i'm not going to get into the details i'm gonna let him open this up but this whole idea of as you grow inevitably no matter what business you're in because he's not just in the outdoor living space he is across all platforms across all businesses but inevitably all businesses hit this hole and he's going to teach us today a bit about it and how to get around it and what to start looking for so greg i'm going to let you take the stage here and tell us all about this concept Great. Well, you know, one of the nice things about, you know, our practice being all over the U.S. and international as well, um, you know, we see a lot of data sets. And so unlike a lot of my peers in accounting, people don't pay us to do this, but it adds tremendous value. So we do it anyway. And it's where we study our clients data and we look for patterns. I, I got news for you. I mean, you know, business is business. There's patterns. And, and just like in sports, whether it's, you know, take it, uh, you know, football or, or basketball or, or baseball, you look for patterns and say, you know, a- analytics are the rage of, of sports these days because they're saying, you know, I can really improve my odds of winning if I understand the pattern and I defend against it. And so one of the key patterns that we kept seeing, though, was people hitting this resistance point in trying to grow their business. And as we kept studying it, 
it, you know, I, I, and this is in the first book, and I refer to it again in the second book as well, that it, we, we refer to it as the black hole. And the black hole of, of business, you know, it starts at the $1 million revenue mark, and you come out of it finally at the $5 million mark in most cases. And I mean, it, it just repeats itself so frequently. Now, the thing is, as you narrow in the midpoint of $1 million to $5 million, guess you know, if you go from two million to four million, okay. Well, you know, I can I can cheat a little bit as I get up to a two million dollar mark, but the deepest darkest moment of the black hole is at three million of revenue, and and now there's a couple of adaptations of when we talk about revenue, and especially because of, of the audience that's listening to you. Um, you know, we're talking about real revenue. Now, you can you can be in industries that have a high amount of revenue and a low gross margin. So after you pay for the cost of goods, before any labor is paid for, that gross margin number, if that gross margin percentage is below 40%, we contend that gross margin is that true economic top line. And so we've got clients that are distributors that they'll sell product for you know a 20% margin or even a 10% margin. Well, if, you, if you're at a million dollars of revenue and you're selling goods at a 10% margin, you don't have a million dollars of revenue you got a hundred thousand you know that that that's the reality and and so there's a lot of people that get all puffed up about revenue and revenue is the the, the slipperiest most unreliable number on the PL. it's the starting point of math is the only value that revenue it has what matters beginning is that gross margin number and when you look at that gross margin number so i'm in a service-based business so my revenue and gross margin in our case is exactly the same because i don't have any pass-through costs now i can i can go subcontract out part of what i do to somebody else and i would have pass-through and and the work that we keep is really kind of our true top line but and, but you know if you're above 40 percent gross margin we will use the top line number because you are you're managing those cogs and so that's kind of become our first you know kind of dividing point so let's just talk in terms of why those numbers matter well I call it entrepreneurial mitosis. And so when an entrepreneur starts their business, they're a single cell amoeba. They're, they're, they're everything. They're the CEO. There's a the head of sales. They're the head of marketing. They're head of operations. They're, they're going to manage finances probably poorly, but, you know, but they're going to do it. They're the IT department. They're the HR department. They're everything. The first stage of entrepreneurial mitosis of when you split into a two cell entity as an entrepreneur is you're going to separate operations from marketing and sales. That, that, that's the first distinctive step of growing as an entrepreneur. For some people, that step occurs at 500,000. For some, it occurs at a million. In most businesses, I will tell you, it occurs closer to 2 million. And you, that you truly get a peer of, yes, you might be the CEO, but you're going to own either operations or marketing and sales as your as your dominant function. And then you're going to have a peer of those executive functions of, of the alternate, you know, that will help you drive the business. And so, like I said, you can cheat up to about two million and do it all yourself, but you're starting to pull your hair out and and you're you're going crazy, you know, and, and it's like, okay, I gotta add that staff. And then as you start to build out a management team, the reason why we call it the black hole is because you have to add operating cost that support a business before you can fully utilize those costs. I, they, to add a key executive person 
is a much bigger impact to you because you can't absorb that cost. It's a significant number to the business as a total. When I'm 5 million and I, I had a $150,000 employee, it's like, okay, yeah. It's not that significant, you know, to the overall turnover of the business on a month in and month out basis. I can add incrementally much easier at five million than I can add incrementally at a million. And that that, you know, moves up. But your business seems to hit this incredibly complex transition point between that two and four million. Now, I'll give you a good example for us. So in our, our office before we merged, um, you know, I started the firm in 86, had some partners come and go over the years. The current incarnation of our firm, you know, we had a couple of partners leave back in 2002. And so 2003 forward is really kind of our consulting focused practice where that, that originated. But the vestiges of it started back in 1986. But this group of partners, we were going, we we're moving along. We were probably growing about 100. In 2003, we were probably a little over a million in revenue. We were growing about 100, 150,000 a year tops every year. And so, and this is another dynamic of growth. Most people, they look at growth as percentages. Growth ain't percentages. Growth is, is dollars. And, and so most people have this constrictive keyhole that they can only get so much growth through in a year. Well, it's a bigger percentage when you're smaller, and it's a smaller percentage when you're bigger. But you, there's this natural constraint. So from 2003 till 2014, we grew 150,000 or less a year. So at that point in 2014, we were 2.7 million and we had our first flat year ever from 14 to 15. So we got a new business coach, a guy named Rob Simons, who's a great business coach you now that we, we truly love, a dear friend as well, you know, from, from working with him. But Rob came in and in 2016, kind of helped me get the team organized, focused, and we had a breakout year. We, we grew $500,000. And so we grew from 2.7 to 3.2. Now, we, we got the team together at the end of the year. We're feeling pretty spunky. Hey, we, we got through this resistance point. And we get the team together, and Rob's leading us through it. And, and the first thing the team said, um, can we just stop growing until we catch up? <laughs> and I go, no. Did you read the book? I mean, this is already in the book at this point. I mean, it's like, did, do you not understand the black hole? I mean, we cannot stop here at 3.2. We are going ahead. I don't care if it's pretty. We are going to, this is the, you know, it's like the old country song. If you're going through hell, keep on going. Well, this is, this is not the place to stop. You run as fast as you can. So the next year we grew 800,000 and got to 4 million. The next year we grew 600,000, got to 4.6. So once you get in those, the mid fours and you're heading to five, the world changes dramatically. But it is, it is about running through it as fast as possible, you know, to get there. And you're not going to have a lot of people believing you that it's a good thing, you know, in, in that process, you know, but it, it was so, so critical to be able to do it. And uh, we went on a string of consecutive month over month rolling 12 growth from January of 2016 until April of 2020. We had consecutive month over month rolling 12 growth, you know, for that four and some odd, you know, uh, year period, which I, I, I think was just phenomenal, you know, for our team to accomplish. So, so, so yeah, but, Greg, yeah. one of the biggest issues is that when you get to this certain amount, this line, is it that you now have to start mm. hiring powerhouses and the business cannot really afford to pay that just yet? Is that is that one of the biggest issues? Well, it, it, it's a good good point, Dwayne. It's not necessarily hiring powerhouses, but you got to hire somebody. 
So there's a couple of strategies. So the overarching, there's two overarching strategies that, that you can uh, deploy. The first one is if you're a fan of Michael Gerber's you know, e-myth, you know, he famously says, Joshua, Dwayne, you got to work on your business, not in your business. Well, that's true some of the time. I got news for you. When you're 5 million and under, there's a lot of work in, in your business still, no matter who you are. Now, there, there may be some exceptions out there, but I got news for you. There, there's still some working in your business to go. Now, granted, yeah, you got to prioritize working on your business, focus on it, get it done. But I can't sit there and just ponder it, you know, hours on end while work's not getting done. That's unique to my skill set of whatever functional area that I'm covering, because I, I refer to it as kind of the big four. You got the CEO function that, that's overarching, and then you got head of marketing, head of sales, head of operations. Th those are the big four functions. And, and so who's, you know, more than likely, and our data also tends to suggest that the CEOs who hold on to the marketing and sales oversight, doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it, but you got to own it. The, the CEOs who, who own sales and marketing have a tendency to grow faster and more profitably than CEOs who own operations and offload marketing and sales to somebody else and try to, I don't like that, I don't want to do it. And, and there's some good reasons as to why. Now, a couple of those over overarching strategies are this. I, you know, so if I've read Gerber and I'm going to, I'm going to go hire the people, I'm going to get through this. Well, guess what that naturally does? You, you've got an extra burden. You got people that actually don't have enough to do every day because they're not, they, there's the business isn't big enough to fully utilize their skill set. So either they sit there and overdo what it is you've assigned to them, or they get involved in other things and start and forget about doing the actual more critical function of what you hired them to do. So that that's a problem. But the bigger problem is this, you're not as profitable. And so you start to lose altitude in terms of profitability and cash flow. The very thing that now starts to put stress, because I got news for you, you know, as you get bigger, do you, is it easier to keep charging the same price and getting better terms? Or as you get bigger and you start working with bigger customers, do they start extracting better pricing and you having to fund some of those terms? Yeah. Yeah. Now that's just the nature of the market. And so you've got these two forces that are working against you when you try to go big too soon. And so, so it, we've had some people pull it off, but I'll give it a one out of, out of 10 chance. I, I think it's a 10% shot. And it's not saying you can't do it, but it has a low, low probability success. The, the non-elegant nine times out of 10 one that works suck it up, stretch the hell out of people and run as fast as you can and get through it. And, and what you're trying to do is you're going to stress the business. And just like we did, we stress the business to its point of people saying, can we slow down? And this is where I had to act. You know, I, I, I tend to, to shy away from the leadership function more than I should. And I said, no, no. I mean, we, I, this is where having written a book, I had to live up to it. I mean, it's in print. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, I can't not do this. We are going to move ahead. And then we beat it again the next year. And and, and so as, as we continue, and we've continued kind of on that same growth pace since, even since we merged, you know, with, with uh, Car Riggs and Ingram. And I mean, we had a phenomenal year this past year. And, 
you know, and I'm, and we got a big plan for this next year, you know, for our team as well. And we're off to a good start. Our fiscal year now ends September 30th. So we're already two and a half months into our next fiscal year and we're on pace to hit that new plan. And, and, and it's, but you know, it, it's eating your vegetables with no seasoning on it, you know, and those kind of things, but, but you've got to stretch people and find where is that new limit where, you know, I, and I, I, Apologize, I can't remember sometimes what I said or when where I said it, but I may have used like if you look at the the um, you know it was widely believed no human could run a four minute mile until Roger Bannister did it back in the fifties. Well, that's what we're trying to find. Where is that limit of human endurance? And and I will tell you, businesses keep finding new levels of performance, and this is where our our standard labor efficiency ratio concepts really come in because those ratios become the performance standards that you can communicate to your team and say, listen, you did it here. Why can't we keep doing it? Is, is there some reason why we, you know, because if you've done it once, I can do it again. You know, I've, I've had a hole in one in golf. Okay. I can do it again. Every time I tee up, you know, to play around a golf, I, I know in my mind what my best score ever was. I, I shot two under once in, in our club championship. And, and I, you know, my goal is to shoot three under. And and it's like, you know, I, I don't do it every time. As a matter of fact, I'll shoot closer to 80. But the <laughs> game's there. Yeah. But but it's like this is the mindset that we've got to have because I'll tell you, I mean, COVID is is knocked the crap out of our our employees' performance uh you know in the last two years. I mean, we, we the we are in a crisis of productivity, you know, right now in terms of US workforce. And I got news for you. We're, we're not we're not adding any more people, and and so if anything, the total workforce is going to shrink from this point forward because we're at a 1.8 replacement birth rate. We ain't making enough people. There are not enough people you can import either from immigration, and, and so this is a challenge that everybody's got to find new levels of productivity and throughput, and then you got to decide what is your game plan for efficient and productive operations, you know, to be able to knock that out. But the thing is, is you, if you're, if your listeners are in that below 3 million point, they've got a first hurdle that they've got to get through. And our number one recommended game plan to get through that is stay as skinny as you can and push through that as fast as you can and stay profitable the whole way. Because then when you get to 4 million, you start to feel the benefits of coming out of it. Mm. And at that point, you're generating cash, you're generating capability. And now you have, you're making a bet before, you know, if you try to go hire a, a critical leader at 2 million of revenue, you don't know, you, you don't know if you've hired the right person probably. And, and I got news for you. I mean, across our client base, you know, the best people that we've got that are in those key executive positions, they came up through the ranks. Hmm. I mean, we, we see a tremendous failure of going out and trying to hire existing talent and bringing it in. And, and this is kind of a constant theme that, that we've been telling our clients that with that restrictive labor force, the ability to develop your own team, do rapid development, targeted training to get people rapidly able to go work in the field to do whatever they need to do. I mean, we live in a wonderful time in terms of educational resources to get people technically up to a skill set and at least make them aware of what they need to know for any role in the business. 
and th those resources are just out there in, 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 in spades, but find a person who wants to grow into it and challenge them. And I'm, I'm telling you, the one thing I'm high on this new generation of workers that are coming in that are 30 and under, they learn faster than my generation. I mean, they are lightning quick in terms of their ability to process, but you just got to give it to them in a way that they can process it. And, and they, they will adapt in enormously quick fashion, you know, in that process. But the key is, is like I said, you're fighting this battle of if I hire it too soon, I'm killing profitability. And then I got to grow into it. And we, we always, you know, when we pick up a client and we're going through this first analysis of their books and, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not profitable. And so we give them two choices and we'll run the numbers and say, well, here's your choices. Here, here's what you got to cut in typically labor um, to get profitable with what you got. Now, in today's day and time, we've added a, a second primary thing because sometimes we, we're running into people who have not uh, responded to price adjustments as quickly as they should. And so we'll, we'll make sure that they push pricing as far as they, they should because a lot of people are scared to raise prices. And I got news for you. You better be raising them because costs are going up like crazy. Um, you know, and, and so that's the first thing is we'll give them that choice. And this is now, if you want to grow into it, what do you have to grow to? And when we quantify that for them, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. For sure, <laughs> and, and I always and I always say, you know, when when you look at growing into your uh, your your operating structure to get profitable, we call that the first stage of denial, um, because every time you try it, you're going to eventually end up going back to the other version and saying, yeah, we got to cut, and you've wasted a year to two years of your journey, yeah. you know, thinking you could grow into it. Absolutely. Now you mentioned price adjustments. I know that's on uh, most of our listeners yeah. minds trying to keep up with the inflation and trying to keep up with everything that's going on. I mean, we're getting hit weekly with aluminum increases and paver yeah. increases and stone and rebar and all the way down the list. Here, here's your, your, here's your hot data. Yeah, exactly. So I, 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 all right. So here's, here's hot off the, so we monitor a hundred company model. So we've got a hundred of our clients that we, we track that are in our in part of our consulting group. So we, you know, we look at the ones that we've got data on going back at least three years or more. And so we track it as kind of our own private company economic index. And these are just U.S. companies, all different industries all over the U.S. So we're not geographically dependent. So I'm not, this is not just Southeast or, or in our local area. This is national. The rolling 12 revenue growth through October so the, these 100 companies represent a billion dollars of revenue. So I'd say that's a pretty decent data set. What do you think it's up in terms of revenue percentage year over year? I don't know that if it's that's risen or higher that they need to raise. No, that's risen. <laughs> I don't know, 6 to 10%? 19. 19, okay. You know what labor's gone up in, in that same time period? Nope. 19%. Okay. Now, the first month that we started to see cost of goods, we're starting to see the first signs of pricing not going up fast enough. To, we've seen a decline in gross margin by 1%. A 1% decline in gross margin rolling 12 is a big decline. And, and, and so the, the challenge is, is you're fighting raising prices from two things. It's not your operating cost. It's not your facilities. It's not your office expenses and those things. It's labor and COGS. That's the only two things that you got to get your head screwed on right to look at price adjustments. What are my cost of goods? Well, cost of good, your cost of goods, you might be looking at it and saying, you know, it's a physical product. 
No, it's not. It's raw materials with labor added to it. There's, those materials didn't get to you without labor. They didn't get put together in whatever form. That aluminum didn't get made without somebody working at the aluminum plant to make make that that aluminum come off the machine. You know, and somebody had to get the raw materials out of the ground. A human had to drive the truck to get it to you, or run the train to get it to you, or operate the crane to get it off the boat. You know, and, and all those things. And so you've got all of these things that are built into the pricing of things as they get to you. And so I, I'm telling you, I mean, and, and I. I don't think anybody has the ability to truly measure this, but our empirical evidence from looking at these companies and doing these calls every month with them, I don't, nobody's got more employees on average than they had at this point last year. So my sense is labor costs have gone up 19%. And my sense is that all other things have gone up 19%. So this, this fantasy of thinking that inflation is 5% is just nuts. That is not what it is. And, and I, I dare people to go look at some individual pricing of things and, and look at it and see, but it, it, it ain't 5%. I got news for you. So if it is 19%, Greg, how do you, you know, what do you recommend your clients do as far as just take their labor rates and push them up 19%, all their cogs, push them up 19%? Like, how are you, how are you managing that strategy? Well, the, the strategy is the first thing is you got to push it to what you believe the market will bear. And so you will never catch up if you think pass-through cost in pricing. That, that is the worst thinking strategy that you can do. What you have to do is constantly press the market of saying, what will the market pay for what I'm doing? And, and so in many things right now, the price is the third or fourth discussion is, first thing is, can you do what I need you to do? Second yep. thing is, when can you do it? Yep. Third or fourth is probably price. Yep. And I'm just stunned at how many of our clients that were reluctant to raise prices. And when they did, didn't ever pay. So, so Greg, what you're saying is when you raise the prices, you don't raise it 19% to catch the labor. You raise the prices because you have to raise the prices. Wow. This, this actually goes back to mindset of like what I've learned from like Tony Robbins of them is that one of the biggest issues is we, we were focusing on paying the bills. Right. Exactly. So what you're saying is don't focus on just paying the bills. Focus on raising the revenue. Right. You, you raise the revenue to say, what is what will the market pay? And then I get to make the cost fit to that. And so if if I, because here's the thing, your labor costs are going to continue to rise. And you can, very few businesses can dynamically adjust revenue moment to moment. I mean, Amazon can by artificial intelligence. I'm not how, I don't know how intelligent Amazon is. Amazon gives me discounts all the time that I don't need. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that they're smart because they're dumb. They, they, they're, they're giving away significant discounts to me all the time because, I, you know, if they knew anything about me as a customer, I am not price sensitive. I am convenience sensitive. Hmm. But they haven't figured that out yet. So don't attribute to them great wisdom. You know, it, it's automated. Yeah. Well, OK, I, 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 I give them that. But that the artificial intelligence ain't that smart yet. And, and so we've got to use our ability as humans. This is where we add value as humans. And, and I believe in the value of that human endeavor is we got to look at the market, instinctively read it and say, what will what will my focus customer pay? Not the whole market. I just the customer I want to deal with. And believe me, there's a significant stratification of customers across that continuum, you know, that, that you want to look at. And, and so where's the ones that I want to deal with? What are they willing to pay? And then 
I manage my throughput to make a profit. Now, over time, my cost, you know, it, uh, I'll give you 30 days before you lose an employee because somebody paid them more or that employee comes to you and says, I need a raise or else I'm going to have to look elsewhere. That, that's about the, the speed in which all of you are going to be faced with this. So guess what? You know, that, that labor cost is going to continue to move up. So you got to outrun it with your pricing. And then as that, that labor cost continues to move up, you just, you got to periodically then push that price and push, you know, push it when you can. Some businesses, I mean, are retail clients that got to go manually reprice and retag everything. I mean, they're kind of loath to raising prices, but it hurts them in environments like this because the manual effort to reprice is, is so daunting. You know, for anybody else, they can just change a rate on a website or something like that. I mean, you better take advantage of that that opportunity, you know, as best you can, or you know, requote. And you got to make sure that you also don't give long term pricing on things that you can't control delivery, and and you can't control that when that what that price is going to be once you get it. I mean, we we're seeing on the news this week, you know, that you know lumber prices are spiking again. And there's lack of demand, lack of supply coming out of Canada on some of the key key uh, items. I mean, it, it's going to be brutal. Yeah. And and if you committed to a price based on what you thought you had something at, and it comes in higher, you better have provisions to to recoup it somehow, some way. Yeah. So, Greg, question for you. I know a lot of our uh, listeners. You know, they they. Uh, you know, they're, they're working in the outdoor living world where they're buying materials and everything like that. Maybe when they're getting their deposits for the, the project or maybe not, you know, at this point, some manufacturers won't even right. take deposits for things, but they, right. the things are locked into a, to a contract with a client say it's a hundred thousand dollar project, but they don't build it until next spring, next summer, next fall, right. but are trying to lock these things in, you know, what are some, uh, some strategies or some thoughts you have on what they should be doing, what they're not necessarily contractually, like the actual word of the contract, but what what kind of philosophy should they be thinking about to save their own ass and, and not get hooked with a potential huge increase in costs and have get stuck with that project, not make any money? Like, do you have any ways that these yeah. guys can start thinking about that? Well, I think, you know, our clients in the building industry have started to put flexible pricing in there that I can give you a quote, but, but this is based on, um, you know, whatever my core components that make up the, the biggest bulk of the cost of the job, you're basically giving them a cost plus on a P you're carving out a piece of it. That's, that's the most risky. So that's one way people mm -hmm. are doing it. Some people are buying future contracts, you know, to you know, they're, they're playing some of those kind of games, but you know, if you're a small guy, I mean, that, that doesn't work for you, you know? So a lot of it, I think is, I, I think the customers are willing to let you flexibly price it. Yep. And, you know, the customer that needs a commitment today for something you're going to do 12 months from now, that's it's less than I, I'm sorry, I can't I can't give you that because I don't know what that price is going to be. And yeah. I, it's funny you say that, Greg, because I actually have a client right now that we're working mm -hmm. with and we've worked with for a few months and um, great project, large project. And they uh, were right about ready to sign and they're, they started to dictate terms to us and they came back and they're like, you know what, we want, we don't want to put 33% down. It's going to be eight, 10, 12 months before you get here. We're not going to, you know, leverage that kind of money on you. And I said, okay, well, this is our terms, right? It's yeah. uh, we'll give you 20%. I'm like, and the additional 13%, we're not going anywhere. Right. First off, second off, they said, and we want to have locked in uh, pricing. And I said, how are we supposed to be able to do that? How can we give you locked in pricing for something we won't touch for nine months from now? And they're like, well, we don't know. I say, well, 
to be honest with you, this isn't going to work. So we're, we're either you're going to deal with the fact that all of our contracts are written with flexible pricing in them now, and, and yep. it's not our goal to gouge you. Yep. And it, our goal is to make sure we're as honest and transparent as possible. I said, or the other option is for us to add another 10% to this project, keep it quiet, and then hope like hell we don't need it. But then you end up spending 10% more on this project. Yep. So that's not the way we want to do mm. it. Um, but most, I'll tell you, all the clients we work with so far have had no problem with this flexible pricing model. Uh -huh. This one happens to be trying to grind an ax on it. And I'm like, well, yeah. guys, you have a choice. Either get on board or your money can go somewhere else where somebody will give you those terms and be out of business in two years when you call them for anything to fix that they broke right. that, that didn't work. That's the job you know that, I mean? will, that will stop in the middle of it and they'll walk off the job. Because oh, they don't have any money. They didn't look at the numbers until <laughs> yeah. they're just too late. Yeah. So, you guys, so here, here's the... This is actually not a question. I'm actually dealing with that exact same thing right now. So it's not really a question. It's actually to add to what uh, Josh was saying. Um, I'm dealing with it right now. Front and center client was ready to sign. I thought he was going to go. And then I'm noticing this nitpick attitude. And then I'm also noticing that the deposit keeps coming up every time we're having that conversation. And Joshua and Greg, let me tell you what I do in this process. You got one more time and it's over. Um, one thing I've learned is money used to control me. And I, this is a $170,000 job. They can go walk away and they can find somebody else to not do what I can do. And so he has one more time, actually, and I'm done with it. So that's how we're operating. So yep. to your points, let me explain this in a different way. So in, a, in an era of, of stable pricing, what you're trying to do is sell the customer on a dollar amount. What is the customer willing to pay? And, and so when, when I teach pricing theory... You know, and then before you bid a, a job, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Uh, before you start doing any costing, I want you to write down somewhere or put it in the spreadsheet. How much is this customer willing to pay based on how they've envisioned? But I, I've not done the first stitch of cost analysis. And let's say it's 150000 And then you go to your cost analysis and you do, you know, and as, as everybody does, you start from the bottom. Put all my cost in it add my profit, and then that's what I'm going to charge. And I will submit to you that that is the dumbest way to price known to mankind. And, and it's like you're always going to leave money on the table. And, and so the idea is if I take the cost, build it up, add a profit, and I'm still below what the customer is willing to pay, I'm charging the customer what they're, you know, what they're willing to pay. I'm not doing that cost plus crap. It's Jack, Jack Welch, former CEO of GE back when they were a good company. Um, you know, he famously said he got GE out of all the cost plus contracts with the government because why do I want to be limited to 6% profit? Yeah. I, you, you know, that, I mean, it's just not, not the best. It's, it's, it's theoretically a safe way, but I got news for you. You know, when you go over the cost cap, on a cost plus contract, it ain't cost plus anymore. It's called you lose your ass, you know. So, so it's it, it, it's the worst of both worlds. And so the idea is, you know, we teach this idea: what is the market value of the thing you do? Now, we've embedded value into things and labor, and so this is the reason why the simple numbers model exists the way it is. Our simple numbers model has one cardinal rule: you never mix labor with something that's not labor. There, there is a different dynamic between labor and other things that, that are cost in the business because labor is the only cost that comes to work every day with an attitude. It has some good days. It has some <laughs> bad days. And, and your ability to marshal that human effort and get it to win the game, 
it's a reason why, you know, I, I can I can brag. I mean, I'm a University of Alabama graduate and we've had a pretty good run in football, you know, and, and, and so it, it shows you that, you know, with good selection, development, training, um, you know, uh, you know, good coaching and, you know, but, you know, you don't win every game and, uh, you know, but but the idea is, you know, those are the companies that win. It's the same in business. There's, there's no difference. And you leave these values on the table. But the, the thing is, is sloppiness gets it to where you're trying to hide from the value that the human adds to the equation. And so in a perfect world, I'm going to pass through the, the hard good cost and say, I, I, I'm just going to facilitate. You know, the thing is, if I'm truly marking up goods, there's a concept in government contract accounting that is actually pretty good. It, it, it's essentially called a material or sub handling pool. The, the only amount that I should charge for you know, sub, on top of subcontractors or on top of materials is the cost of my effort to actually go procure it. And in theory, if I'm passing it through. And that's pretty good accounting theory that government contractors actually use for that, you know, that process. But the thing is, we're afraid to defend our value of what we bring as a human. And, you know, somebody thinks that, you know, if you if you actually gave them an hourly rate, you know, that, oh, I can't pay that. And, and so once again, you know, I, it's not about billing by the hour either. It is about your value to complete something and never, never mention the word hours. It ain't about hours. It's about mm-hmm. results. And, and so if, if I go to someone and say, there's $100,000 of materials and I'm going to charge you whatever they cost me, I'll try to buy them at the best price that I can get. And, you know, you figure a, a 10% handling fee for your effort to go do procurement and delivery and all those kind of things, pick whatever handling number you want to add to it. But that's, that number is controllable. And then for the things that we're doing, it's going to be $20,000. It's going to be $50,000, whatever it is. And it's like, and it's not ours. I mean, we'll, we'll do it till we get done. And if we get it done fast, it's still worth that because we know what we're doing. It's the value of what we're doing, because here's the, the, the card. One of the other simple numbers, cardinal rules. If you bill by the hour, there's only two possible outcomes. You either give away your expertise or you charge for your ignorance. You cannot get to an economic equilibrium billing by the hour. I'm either going to win or lose, but I never it, it, I, you know, it, it's never the midpoint where both parties win. And I love the win win where I can win with a customer. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Now, here, here's the thing that getting to present my material internationally has taught me. The only difference between a third world economy and a first world economy is the speed in which margin flows through a transaction. If you, hmm. uh, right before COVID, I got to present some material in the Middle East and the UAE as well as East Africa. And, you know, so I'm going to Kenya and I, I'm in Nairobi and I'm talking to a group of entrepreneurs, you know, and they're telling me all the stuff about, and I said, well, how's, How's the economy? This was in January of 2020. And, and I said, well, how's the economy here? He says, well, it's kind of down a bit. Really? I mean, back then, I mean, 2020 before COVID hit, I mean, the U.S. was, we were rocking along pretty good. Had a long run of the longest period of economic expansion in U.S. history. And I said, why is that? He says, well, government spending's down and multinational company spending's down. Really? Well, the thing was, is their mindset of an entrepreneur is someone who's carving off a piece of work that the government didn't want to do 
or a multinational company didn't want to do. That's not entrepreneurism. Entrepreneurism, I said, listen, guys, I got news for you. you you're looking at the wrong end of the horse. I said, I, I mean, I may be from Alabama, but when I came in, there's a bunch of people out there that I, I see just all over the place. I got news for you. They got needs. And I guarantee you they got money. You need to figure out what they need and go take care of them. And, and you'll have a business forever. And, and, you know, but the key is the, where they were getting hammered was terms. Governments over there paid six months to a year sometimes. Well, guess what? I mean, just think of the capital that you guys would have to invest in your businesses if it took six months to collect a receivable. Yeah. That ain't going to work. Yeah. And, and, and so it creates a separation of only the wealthy can be a business owner there versus in the U.S., I can rub $2 bills together and I can make a profit. And then I keep that dollar of profit and I got $3 bills I'm rubbing together and I'm going to make five now. And I just keep doing yep. that. I, I, and, and we've really focused in on, and really kind of the, the thing I love about our simple numbers philosophy is we really help a lot of people figure out how to create capital through their business by retention of profit. And then you just go keep, keep building that thing and you spin that wheel and it grows really nicely. Greg, a lot of our podcasts that Joshua and I do is based on mindset and how to think. And I just had one hell of a powerful aha moment just listening to you. You probably didn't realize I had it. <laughs> so what happens is a lot of us businesses, especially a lot of us, we start, we really start from some, I'm talking some humble beginnings. I mean, one pickup truck, we get out here and we grind and we go and we still have a mindset of our money. And one of the things that I've learned about this landscape industry is I can take 1000 contractors and there's really only 10 or 20 who are doing very well. And I think mm -hmm. what happens, Greg, a lot of the, the contractors, including myself, and even some of the stuff I heard Josh say is in these is sort of in this mindset is that there's a certain limit that you think that you're okay to charge. Like you feel like you're mm -hmm. cheating somebody or you're taking too much away. But what I got from you is in order to really build a business and have profit and really have the best of the best on staff, you got to charge as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be in market. I mean, but there again, it's going to challenge you. I mean, do you want to be at the top end? So, you know, so th there's a, there's a price and, and, um, and, and availability curve, you know, Nordstrom charges the highest price and has the least amount of customers. Walmart charges the lowest price and has the most customers. I probably don't want to be either one of those. What I want to be is what we call the elbow. And I want to not be the highest price. I want to live in that elbow where there's probably people that appreciate the value that I'm adding, but they got enough money and there's enough of them. But there again, if I want to be the high price one, just understand there's only, there's a limit to how many people will pay that price. And if I want to be Walmart, well, good luck with that. I mean, that, that's a, that's a tough one, you know, but you know, there, there's people that, that want to do that. But, but here's the thing. If, if I was going to create the perfect economy, I would just make sure that if the customer will, will give you cash as you incur cost on their behalf, that's the optimal solution that everybody wins. And so I'll give you a great example. My, my, my guy who built my, my swimming pool at, at our house, you know, we, we've got 
uh, three granddaughters and one granddaughter on the way. And so, you know, pools are great magnets to come over to the grandparents, you know, and play. And and so we invested in that uh, in, in 2020 and they were working through it. And this guy did a really good job. He never asked me for more than what he was deploying on my behalf of either uh, he, you know, but for him to do the next phase, I had to, you know, just like building a house. I had to relate, I had to give him a draw of cash so he could place the order for materials or rent the equipment to dig the hole or buy the, we did a fiberglass insert, you know, and, and so, you know, you got to go, you know, it's time to go pay those guys. And, you know, and, and so the idea was, you know, he never was out any cash, but he wasn't sitting holding my cash at any point. And, and that's really where customers get a little antsy is if, you know, and, and, and to be quite honest, I counsel my clients to be, be careful of sitting here holding your customer's cash when you have an uncertain outcome, because there's a great line out of the sun also rises, uh, Ernest Hemingway's book where these two guys are discussing, you know, their business. And one guy says, Fred, how'd you go bankrupt? He says, well, gradually. And then suddenly, and, and. And that's what going bankrupt happens to people that collect too much in advance, things shift on them, and now they're selling the next job to finish the last job. And that, that's the old contractor's dilemma, you know, that, that you never want to get into. And I've always liked the idea, as I said, if you really want to be the most optimal first world economy, you want cash to flow through the system as the transaction happens. I, I don't want the customer taking 45 days to pay me when I paid money on their behalf. I don't want them paying me 45 days in advance before I have to pay somebody. Now, everybody might think that that's a wonderful thing. You got to be pretty good at managing your data to not get, not lose your side of it. Now, we're, we're capable of doing that and our clients who do that. I go, okay, well, you know, but, you know, I just had one today that's, you know, he, he's sitting on, two million dollars of his customer slash vendors money and you know and and he's got an uncertain future it inflates the operation is what i notice when you're sitting on too much clients cash um i mean we're running a profit first system but i'm seeing i'm sort of i don't want to put it all out in the air but i'm seeing that now where my uh Account. I have a separate bank account that I use to pay mm-hmm. um, yeah. materials and stuff like that. It's it's piling up so large that it's sort of inflating the operation. You know what I mean? It like I felt like I've tapped into it a couple of times and I'm like, I need to leave that alone or I got to start getting it out of here. But it's good that you've you set that aside. But but you're you're one out yep. of 100 to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, yep. and so, but, but there again, it's already spent money, but, yeah. but your risk is, is you sold the customer on those materials. But at that, unless you've got flexible pricing built into your contract, that, that, that reserve fund could diminish because you're paying now more for materials than, than what you sold it for, for yeah. the job. And you won't question it because you got the money on hand now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hmm. And that, that, that's complex accounting. I mean, no, there's no, no two ways about it. You know, I told and, you and, I was there most last people time we just talked. don't, just don't invest. You know, so, <laughs> I told you yeah. I was there last but, time we talked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there again, I mean, like I said, if you really get down to the, to the brass tacks of things, if, if I'm going to devise the perfect pricing scenario, now I got to be good at defending my value of what I bring to the job. 
listen, there's $100,000 in materials, and there's $50,000 that you're going to pay me for what I know how to do with this stuff. And and you, if you can defend that, great. So it's just like when we sell a planning session for a client. We don't, we don't give you hours. We never discuss hours. It's like, here's the price. You either want it. Here's, here's what you're going to get out of it. If that's worth it to you, great. Let's do business. If it's not worth it to you, come back and tell us when you are ready. And, and so people do. Um, it's amazing how many people come back two years later going, yeah, I think I'm ready to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. You know, but, but it's like, I'm good with it. You know, I, and the thing I learned, so this is going back to the entrepreneurial mitosis thing. So uh, we, we use this, or we used to use, I, we don't use it anymore, but uh, we use this uh, personality profile from Caliper that would do this profile. And, and one of the things that measured was resilience. And so when I, I, myself and one of my staff were the guinea pigs back in 1998, when we first did it, you know, and I'm looking at it and I scored like a 28 on a one to a hundred on resilience. And so I'm talking to the consultant who goes over the test with us. And, uh, and, and, and I said, well, you know, I said, I, I, I'll take issue with that. I, I think I'm more resilient than a 28 out of 100. He says, well, not really. <laughs> he said, when you, he said, you're not a zero, you know, but, but he said, when you, when you get told no, you feel bad and, or you have a setback, you're, you feel bad for a couple of days, but then you get over it and then move on. So, okay, well, I'll give you that. I, I, I can understand that. I says, well, here's, this is the best, most, best question I've ever asked somebody for guidance. I said, can I do sales? Because at that point, I had the belief in myself that I couldn't do sales because I didn't, all of our business at that time was in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, where our office is. And, and I, I didn't grow up here. So I didn't have, I wasn't a blue blood. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to the right school or know the right people. I was, I could just do everything. You know, I was a good technical partner, but I, I, pers- I limited myself in terms of my thought of my ability to win business. And I asked him, I says, well, can I do sales? And he says, well, you can only if you didn't get told no too often. Hmm. And, and I realized at that point, as I, I accepted the fact that I will never do sales the rest of my life. Now, what I can do is market. And what I and this is this is kind of one of my beliefs that you know we've we've always had this sales and marketing thing wrong because we naturally say sales and marketing. And I try very diligently to not do that. I always say marketing and sales. Because last time I checked, marketing must always precede sales. You cannot do sales without preceding it with it may be done by the same person. But the first act has to be marketing in that process. And what I learned was, is I could focus on marketing because you might have figured this out by now, but I kind of like what I do. I like, I like figuring these things out and figuring out a better way for people to be profitable and run successful businesses that produce cash and wealth and make it worthwhile to do what we do. And I can get excited about that. I've just steeled off my caring of i don't care if you do business with us or not because that would make me that that affects my resilience and i, I would feel bad you know if i tried to do sales and so i i leave that to you know mike maxson is my partner in the office that does all the intake you know and, and so it's like that that's not my job you, you, if you if you're interested in doing business with us go talk to mike you know but as I, i'm just going to tell you what i love about what we do and what i think we can do but at that I, i'll just leave that and that's between you and mike to take it from there and I think this is kind of where a lot of entrepreneurs miss out on this idea of, you know, they, they, they kind of lose the love of the business and, and it becomes drudgery. And, 
you know, I, I haven't seen too many businesses to me that didn't have some element of joy or, or fascination to it. And, and you can kind of find that and then find the people, you know, that, you know, can be really good at those components that you're not. And, and if you can piece those things together, you know, those are the really cool businesses to get to see how they how they got all the pieces of the puzzle to fit, you know, and work well. I love that. I love that, dude. You know, I think a lot of it when it comes back to the pricing is is a bigger question that that we all struggle with, especially as men. Mm-hmm. It's, am I worth it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Am I worth the extra money? Am I worth it? And if you don't have a high worth in your mind, you don't look in the mirror and say, wow, you're awesome. You know what I mean? You don't say that. Then you're like, all right, well, I, I, if, if I charge too much, I'll be told no, that'll ding my ego. Mm-hmm. Or I, I can't believe they'd actually pay that for me. Right. Right. So it's like, oh, goodness. So so then it goes back to Dwayne's point earlier of the mindset that if you aren't in a position of adding value first, that's always the goal, right, is add value as much value as you possibly can. It's all in the value add that dictates your price. You can't show up and say, I'm going to do this project and I want fifty thousand dollars. It's a hundred thousand dollar project. And all I'm going to do is take your money and hand it to somebody. My only function is is to be a hand to go from you to you. That's, that's, you're never going to be able to sell that, if you will. There's no value there. But if you're adding tremendous value through design and through conversation and really figuring out the bigger why in the project and how to, to lock in the best people to build it and to be the managers and do all the permitting and like all the stuff that the clients don't want, that's all those value adds. Every one of those value adds then adds more to that check for you because you're doing something that no one else wants to do. Yeah. So therefore your value is higher. Yeah, I had a, and I, just, I had a, uh, in the, in the 2.0 book, I tell a story. I don't, I don't think I put the dollars amount in there, but I refer to it as my $20 million hour. I mean, so I, I had a one hour conversation with a client that changed the value of his deal, $20 million. Hmm. Just, wow. just, you know, now I, I beat that this year. I had, had one this year that back in April that it's going to be at least a $45 million hour. And if the stock options and everything pay off, it could be about 60. Wow. Congratulations. And, and those are, those are cool, you know, because you, you get to look at it and, and it's like you're saying, Joshua, it, it's where you're trying to remind yourself, hey, I, I, I have some of those, you know, those moments that I can use as credibility, not so much to tell somebody else. And then I'm, I'm just not a hype person, but it's to tell myself. Yeah, I, I can. Yeah, I, I've seen some things that, that can help people <laughs> and uh, you know, we just try to keep doing it. So. But, but I'll give you a good example. So like one of my clients has multiple physical therapy practices and, you know, and he's charging $185 an hour. And I've got another physical therapy client in Texas that's charging 120. And I, and I, I was telling, you know, the guy that's charging one, I mean, he's, he's got a good business and it's like, he's at, he's at that belly full moment. And it's like, you cannot let the belly full moment of I'm making enough affect my decisions about the business. I, I think you, it's, it's why I always believe in the theory, charge the market price and let everything else work its way out from there. Because if, if you're telling yourself, because I guarantee you the guy in Texas is every bit worth that 185. I mean, I mean, he, he's really, he's got some really cool clientele, you know, and, and, and he, he, he could, he could charge 185, but he hadn't mentally got there yet, you know, but this is where peer groups and getting groups of businesses together podcasts like this it's the consumption and passing around of ideas that help people win that confidence to say i can do that 
and, and get them over the hump. And that, that's why it's really valuable what you're doing. You know, Greg, I'm on you with that because when Joshua and I started this podcast, it was really to sort of him and I, we love to talk. So we'll talk all day mm-hmm. and we're like, you know, let's start recording so people can hear. But what I'm also learning from this podcast is that from talking to guys like you and uh, other people, I'm learning so much more about business and everything else too. And then I'm also teaching the people around me that would never have learned that. And uh, I got some good news for the, both of you guys, that client I was talking about, um, he just signed the contract and is ready to move. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> he must be hearing my, he must be Love hearing it, our brother. podcast. Like Dwayne's not fucking around. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And you know, and, and that's the, you know, that's where you got to stare into the mist as a business owner, sometimes being willing to walk away from something. And it's so hard to do, you know, but, you know, but that's really where, I mean, we're, we're in this run of the economy short of government intervention on either price controls or something like that, like they tried to do, you know, back in the 70s, uh, which, uh, by the way, it didn't turn out well. You know, so in case, you know, any government persons ever listens to this, I mean, it's like, don't do that. That's bad. You know, but, <laughs> but you know, it, it's it's the, the thing of, I mean, think of it like, I mean, everybody sees this all around us right now. I mean, so I use this example with a client today on a call and I said, just look at, look at the restaurants. The restaurants are not as profitable as they once were because they're having to limit the hours that they're open. And you go into a restaurant that has a waiting list of people sitting out in the lobby, and yet there's 20 open tables. It's because they're missing kitchen help and missing servers. They can only serve the throughput, you know, that that, that they can get, you know, through that keyhole. And you know, that's a, that's a huge, huge impact. And we're seeing this throughout the economy of, I I call it companies with $10 million of capacity, only pushing $8 million through the keyhole. And what, what that means is you're not making money. I mean, once you, once you drop from 10, you got capacity for 10, but you're only pushing through eight. It's called, I, I didn't, I didn't make a profit. I just lived to play another day. And I mean, and there's some, there's some serious, challenges, you know, in, uh, you know, the business landscape that's, you know, in those, those things are still yet to be played out in a lot of cases, but, you know, I, 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 two of my clients today that are both somewhat in the building industry, they weren't happy calls because these are people that have that scenario of they've had record sales, but they're, they have below expectation of throughput. And it ain't about what you sell at this point. It's about what can you get done every month and meet your minimum, uh, you know, margin standard to, to remain profitable and, and stable. And that's that's the that's the big number. And to a point, there there's some of the guys out there that are struggling that you're just going to have to accept the point of I've got to adjust my business capacity at the moment to what I can get through the system. And I can't keep carrying excess capacity, hoping that I'm going to get more throughput. You know, so if you're if you're a secondary contractor to a prime and that prime can't coordinate enough stuff for you to get stuff through, you're going to have to adjust to 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 get just be profitable with what you know that they can pass through to you for the time being, because that throughput's not getting better very fast. 
Greg, question for you when it comes to, you know, contractors out there, um, as we wrap up here, what do you think is the best strategy for them when it comes to taking deposits and all that kind of thing where they have lead times now of three, four, six, eight months just to get product to their job sites? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, if, if it's a hundred percent of the project price called a hundred thousand dollar project, what would you say is the best strategy when it comes to taking deposits and timeframes and things like that? Well, like I said, the, the, the perfect one is just be honest with your customer and say, listen, I'm not trying to hold your money and not do anything with it. Uh, so I'm going to, to ask for money. Yeah, the, the first thing, I do want enough money to make sure you're committed. You know, there's an old adage, you know, the, you know, the, um, in a chicken and egg, in a bacon and egg breakfast, the chicken is an interested party. The pig's committed. And, and so, <laughs> exactly. you know, so, so you want, people to be you want that customer to be committed but as the job progresses you just you just have to determine now the thing is is you're balancing between a couple of things if you you know some people will say well i need that money up front because if i ask for it later they're not going to have it i you know i get that and and so i I think sometimes you just got to you know i mean like my pool guy i thought he he handled it the best way he he was he was pretty upfront with this is how much it's going to be. Do you have the ability to when I need a check, you know, I'm, I'm going to let I'm going to give you a week's notice. And and so either either that person has cash or they're funding it from a borrowed resource. And, and, and so understand that you've got to be in sync with their source of funds. Yeah. And so if mm-hmm. I'm dealing with only wealthy people who, you know, I got news for you, wealthy people don't always have a lot of access to cash, you know, so that mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't mean anything. And so be honest and say, how are we going to deal with this and what what time frame do you need and 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 draw on it, you know, as needed. Um, and, and if you if you're concerned about commitment, you know, you might get a heavier upfront initial deposit, but you know, it's probably somewhere in that 20 plus percent range is where you're getting an immediate commitment from them, you know, but then you're yeah. trying to draw as you're spending money on their behalf. I of think course. it's the cleanest yep. way to go. And, mm-hmm. and it's like Dwayne was saying earlier, you're not getting this operational distortion, you know, of where, Either I'm yep. behind on collecting cash, which you just just don't ever get there. That that's the first advice. Uh, pull, stop yep. the job and don't don't be working. You know, on and being their bank. Um, you yep. know, and that that's not my favorite way to do it. No, Greg, I totally agree, and I I know that. That's uh, that's something that we've we've found out over the years is not to be the bank. Right. So when you have you know, we, we do everything with uh, partners. So, you know, as partners are, are being paid, we're being paid first and then it passes through to them. It's never coming out of our pocket. And if a client holds back on something, it has to be something on that project that didn't go well. And that partner then is responsible for that to be fixed and remedied until we get paid. So they get paid. And it's about sticking to that role. Yeah the rule the whole time and not coming out of pocket with stuff. Would you agree? That's their best strategy. Absolutely. And, and it's easy to talk yourself into, Oh, they're good for it. Or I'm telling you, once you get out over your skis, you can't get back. And and that that's just not good. Yeah. I I know we're close to closing, but I'll add to this a little bit. Um, Greg, what we're seeing too is, and Joshua has probably seen this. We actually do, we do, Joshua and I pretty much have the same type of business. And I think I'm, I might be selling a little bit more product than Joshua. I don't know for sure. We don't really talk about that, but I'm noticing that I have to buy the product 100%. 
So what I do is I figure out all the products that I'm buying 100% up front. Then I go through and figure out the proper deposit I need to pay the contractors and stuff like that. So some jobs, it could be a little loaded, heavier um, down payment. Some is a little lighter, just depending on what's going on. And but I have like for when I buy a kitchen system, I'm shelling out $10,000 before they're even building. And I won't see that thing for 16 weeks. You know what I mean? So right. those are some of the things I deal with. And, and, and so, and to clarify to your point, I think is a good point to make. It's not about you're, you're getting your customer to give you cash when you spend cash on their behalf. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of suppliers that's making you give them a deposit. And so it's like one of my clients that's in the custom stone business, they import, you know, stone from Italy. I mean, as soon as they get an order and, and get it specced, I mean, the 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 uh, stone cutter is not going to start cutting the stone until they get a 50% deposit. And so they're making sure that they get that money from the customer to be able to make that 50% deposit. Yep. And I, I don't need to be playing bank on that. And, and so mm-hmm. it, it means physical procurement of goods and or deposits that you pay on their behalf. Now, I think you're right too. This is a case where I don't see much likelihood of anything going down in price that's a raw material or, or a good or a piece of equipment. And so the more, if you have capacity to buy stuff early for a job and lock it in and store it, then the customer is probably going to come out ahead. But that's a case where the customer customer has to understand the pricing risk of, do you want to pay for that now? Or you want to take the risk six months from now of what that lumber is going to cost or, or whatever that item is that you're, you know, whatever, you know, uh, contracting thing you're doing for them. And I love that. It, it moves. Yeah. We're actually, some, some of our clients where we're buying like say bromic heaters or certain appliances or things like that for kitchens where we let them know ahead of time, say, guys, look, we can wait up till closer to the project, but the pricing doesn't hold, or we can order it right now. We'll have it shipped. You store it until we get there in two, four, six, eight, 10, 12 months, whatever. You just store it somewhere nice. And then we don't have to worry about price, price fluctuations. Which way would you like to proceed? And most of them are saying, just send it to me, dude, send it to me. It'll sit in my garage. I'll be perfectly happy with that. And they don't have to worry about the fluctuations. We don't have to worry about the fluctuations. They've already paid hundred uh, percent. We've already paid out hundred percent. We've already been paid for our time to do all of that stuff, but that, that helps the client as well go through this. And that minimizes that uh, ding later, either for them or for you. Absolutely. So if you can do that with certain things, then do it. The, the other thing that I will say in terms of pricing too, is just on the value that you add to whatever materials you do on a job. You've got to think through the things that you figured out better than your competition and don't give that away. It's not, you know, you, you, you don't, you've got to charge for it. It's like, I figured this out and it's worth $2,000. Now, the fact that I've got a, a 15 minute of effort in it is irrelevant. It's, I've got something that I know how to do that Fred doesn't know how to do. And and so make sure that when you create a unique approach or, you know, value that, that you put into it, don't think time, think value first. And, yep. and you got to price it in. I love that. I love that, Greg. 
Dwayne, any more questions for Greg? No, this one went way over, but I enjoyed every like minute of it. And I'm looking at you, I and like, I, I knew going for like days. I'm looking at you, and like, okay, I know we got, I know we got to do the ending, but dude, this is just Greg. Thank you, man. Seriously, bro. Like, yeah, I, I got to fly down and come yeah. hang out with you, yeah. and just you mean take you out to dinner or something? Jesus, wow. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's kind absolutely. of sad, you know. I, I tend to like to talk about business just for fun, you know. So, so between oh, it's not sad. I love that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, we're going to talk about alcohol and women conversation. When, when I come down. We're going to talk uh, about alcohol and women. We're not going to talk business at all. <laughs> <Okay>. All right, <laughs> sounds good. Oh, Greg. So, um, how can people find you? I mean, I love this uh, podcast, but how how can people find you and get more information or connect with you? Uh, you know, the 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 consulting website, simplenumbers.me, is, is one of the easiest places to find us. And then, um, you know, direct email to me is greg.crabtree at cricpa.com. Um, and is is one of the easiest way to, to, to reach out. But there's a contact form on the simplenumbers.me website. Uh, we are part of Car Riggs and Ingram. So cricpa.com is the firm's website. Website, but we're kind of a unique outpost. I mean, they, you know, they're one of the top 25 accounting firms in the U.S. and have offices from North Carolina to New Mexico, mostly in the southern states. But, but really, we're kind of a unique office. I mean, we're the only office that does. The, you know, we created the process, and uh, we're, we're we're kind of the. Uh, the special goats of the firm in the sense of, uh, you know, we, we've, we've got this thing that we do and, uh, yeah, and, and, and so it's, it's been kind of neat to write the books and do the talks and, uh, we've got a unique consulting process that starts with a planning session, you know, with a client. Um, and the way our, our thing works is we always do this analysis session. So nobody, we don't start working with anybody except through a planning session that can either be done remotely or in, in person at your site or on, in person at our site, because that's that initial analysis. And it's kind of a fun thing to do because there's magical moments that it's, it's like Dwayne was talking about earlier about having that aha moment. And we love to create those incredible understandings of a business that you, you intuitively knew it's there, but it's, you couldn't see it in the data. And, and so, you know, our probably one of our best skill sets is we make good sense out of bad data if we have enough of it. Uh, and, and so, so, you know, that that's kind of the first thing. And then on an ongoing basis, we can do monthly, you know, updates of our model and, and consulting. We do the traditional accounting stuff, but our office, we only take on clients. If you, if you start with consulting, then we'll we'll consider tax and um, outsource bookkeeping and other things as people need it. But um, but if you just come to us for traditional stuff, I mean, we'll refer to one of the other offices that, that do that. But we look at it in our simple numbers approach is our goal is to work with clients that want to create a planned outcome. And so, you know, if you want to be a random business and have random outcomes, let me introduce you to somebody else. We think there's enough patterns in business that we can learn from that I can create a plan. Now, granted, there's things outside of my control I got to deal with, but I want to be aiming at a target. I want to pursue that target and keep adjusting course and getting better, getting better, getting better. And and those are, those are just the fun clients to work with, you know, over the years. Absolutely. Greg and I certainly appreciate all of our time here together. And I hope to have you back on soon. It's been, I love listening to you, your ideas. And I mean, we're so in sync with this stuff. It's amazing. And, you know, I, I love working with your whole team. It's been amazing for us, transformative for our business. And I hope the listeners out there reach out to you because I'm telling you, this is, um, this is incredible. And you don't have to be running a $20 million 
dollar business to to reach out to these guys. You know, it's best to start the process so you can grow and scale um, and doing it in a way that you can actually see it happening, understand the communication between numbers and start off with an awesome foundation as opposed to trying to figure it out later when you're in the middle of a uh, some kind of crazy situation where you're trying to, you know, don't know what's going on. So, um Greg, once again, thank you. And uh, guys out there, like I said, reach out to Greg, Simple Numbers book, you know, download it on Amazon or not download it, but uh, uh, grab it on Amazon, bring it in and uh, read through it. You'll get a sense of what he's talking about throughout this and engage their services because these guys are freaking awesome. They've taken us uh, on a nice, nice journey that I'm loving every single month when I meet with Jack and and it's really fun to see how it all comes together. So, all right, Greg, enjoy. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a good one, guys. All right.